Welcome to the show, friends. Greg Kokel. Um, that's me, host of this program, and uh, glad you're part of it. Um, I'm just trying to think, do I want to start out with anything clever like announcements or just move forward? Uh, let me just say this, that coming up in about one month is our final reality of the season. It's in Georgia. It's uh, Augusta, Georgia, and it's it's the last shot that you have for a tremendous season of realities. You can find out about it uh, at realityapologetics.com. And uh, the date for that is April 21st and 22nd. So there is room there. It is the only—everything is sold out. This is our sixth event. Our fifth is just coming up. Actually, as you get this, it'll be the weekend of the fifth event in Philly, which is sold out. I mean, I'm presuming there's—at the beginning of the week, there are 75 seats left. I guarantee you those are going to go, okay? And so every single event— has been sold out. Strictly speaking, Minneapolis could have taken a couple hundred more, but we wouldn't have been able to put them in <laughs> into any uh, any breakout sessions because that would have been four thousand kids. And if you have ten breakout sessions, that's like four hundred per room. Can't do that. So we were to the gills there with thirty eight hundred, and uh, that's been the case in every circumstance. Dallas a month ago. And now uh, Philly sold out, and so Augusta is your last shot. So I just just saying, okay. Um, all right. So with that in mind, let's just go to our callers here. And Joshua's on board first. You were patient through the last hour, Joshua. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling, and thanks for your patience. Certainly, I appreciate you having me. You're welcome. Um. So I'm calling in regards to the A and B theory of time. Okay. Um. And I'm having a bit of difficulty navigating the issue as a whole. Okay. I do understand that the um, A theory is a bit more intuitive. Um, yeah, I would say. But that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's right. But uh, I, I have read a little bit of what uh, I think that you wrote an article in 2014 uh-huh. um, that included some information about that. And I've recently bought William Lane Craig's book. Uh, future and eternity or something like that. I can't yeah, remember the name. Right. But today's Tuesday. Time, time and eternity or something like that. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I said, today's Tuesday. I wanted to seize the day and maybe um, see what, what you could offer um, as to why, what are some good reasons to potentially reject the B theory? Yeah. Okay. This is a great question. I'm glad you called and I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I love talking about this because it's not the kind of thing most people talk about. And I actually took a course from William Lane Craig about 30 years ago on this issue. And uh, it's the only it's only the second C I received in my entire, my entire college time. Uh, but uh, it, and I always bug him about that. But it was a really hard course. I actually deserved at least a B. But nevertheless, I understood the material pretty good. And it was a fascinating class, and uh, and then Bill did a—I guess he did a book on this, but he used he did a talk on this, and we used to give this talk away for free with his permission um, uh, here at—I uh, think it was for free, or maybe we—I don't know, but it was when we had cassette tapes. But uh, God, Time, and Eternity, I think it was called, and that might be what the substance of which became the book that you have. And um, this whole issue is a bit philosophical, okay? So, but I think I could jump a lot of the um, 
philosophical um, gobbledygook and give you some ways of thinking about it that will help you make sense, okay, uh, of, the, of the options. There is the A theory, as you mentioned, and the B theory. Now, Melinda Penner used to say, the B stands for bad, okay? It's the wrong view. <laughs> so that's how I keep them apart, A and B. Now, you mentioned that the A theory of time is the most intuitive, and that's because the A theory uh, treats time, temp treats temporal becoming as something real, okay? I know that sounds hoity-toity, but temporal becoming is simply a, word, a phrase that describes our common-sense experience of what we call time. Time is passing, is the way we talk about it. There was a past, there is a future, and there is now. And the now is drifting into the past, and the future is becoming. And so there is temporal time becoming, okay? Things happen, is another way of putting it. Um, I remember asking Bill, Bill Craig this once, Time is what, and he affirmed, yeah, I got it right. <laughs> Time is what keeps everything from happening at once. Now, that's pretty pretty straightforward and intuitive, wouldn't you think, Josh? Yeah. Yeah, it just separates the events, all right? That's the A theory. The B theory, on the B theory, there is no temporal becoming. There is no passage of time. All you have uh, is everything happening at once. And, uh, and you think, well, how could that be? Because of the way time is understood, all right, on that view. Now, let me qualify this discussion in this way. Um, lots of times Christians will say, well, God is outside of time, okay? I don't think that's true. And um, and what they say is, well, wait a minute, you're putting God in a time box. And my response is, and this will be more clear in a few moments, that if God is not temporal, if he is not participating in temporality, then he doesn't do anything, He except for maybe sustain things. But he doesn't cause anything to happen. He only causes things to be, and everything is just as it is in one moment. Nothing's going on, because the minute you have something going on, you're going to have the passage of time. So we're having a conversation, right, that's going on. When you, the, 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 the when you called is now in our past, and the when you hang up is still in the future. <laughs> What we're doing now is we're having a conversation, and there are past tense facts that are true of this conversation, and future tense facts that are true of this conversation. There will be when we're not having this call anymore. There was when the call was initiated. Now we're having the conversation. All that's the passage of time. If there is no passage of time, and some people think this is true of God, then nothing is happening. And the best characterization of this is one that C.S. Lewis gave and uh, in Mere Christianity. I think it's a great illustration. The problem was that C.S. Lewis defended the wrong view, in my view. Okay, here's what he said. He said, to God, time is like a book. 
Now you think of any book, a novel. Let's just let's say Gone with the Wind. Okay, Gone with the Wind has a beginning and ending, but it has doesn't have a temporal before and after. It doesn't have things that come before and things that happen because the whole book is sitting there, right there, the whole thing. All stages of time described in the story are all existing at the same moment. Nothing's actually happening. You can get a narrative as you read through, if you were to read through the book, and there is going to be before and after relationships that have to do with prior, and, and but not temporal relationships, because the book is sitting there, the whole thing, the first page and the last page are sitting there. That's the B-theory of time. In the B-theory of time, everything happens at once, and we're like a story. There is no passage of time. There is no temporal becoming. There are just facts at different markers. The A-theory of time is where things happen. Time flows. There's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. Now, the past is gone, obviously, and the future hasn't happened yet, but there are still facts related to the past and related to the future. These are called tensed facts. I did do that, and I will do this. As long as you have tensed facts, you have a passage of time. As long as you have things happening, you have the passage of time. That's the common sense understanding that all of us have about the nature of time. Now, some philosophers want to tell us otherwise. And they want to tell us, no, nothing's going on. And part of the, I think, motivation for that is that that the physicalist view of time is the B theory. And this is a way, a theory of time that's most consistent with physicalism. Okay, and so that's... That's what's prompted it, yeah. Pardon me? That's what's prompted my question. Yeah, so, uh, but I think the B theory of time is obviously false. And if you don't have a kind of a philosophical motivation to adopt it, why would anybody adopt that which is completely counterintuitive to our personal experience? What are the reasons for that? Here's another problem with that. There's no—it turns out that there's no you in the P-theory of time. The only you is the, the, is the collective instances of you-ness over a long period. It's the—they call it a, a, like a time worm or something like that. You've got to connect all these different things together from the beginning of your existence to the end. And, of course, now we're not talking beginning and end temporally. We're just talking about it logically. And you are this long string of things. Instead, I mean, on the A view, I'm me right now. I'm all of me in the moment. I don't have to have my past facts and my present, what I would call my past or my future details adding up to me. In a book, a character is is the individual who is the sum of all the things that you find in the narrative, because there is no individual. There are no people in books. These are these are just they're they're just words that characterize events, but there are no substances in books. It's just a story. Now, I think the way C.S. Lewis was trying to argue for B-theory of time is that this put God outside of time, and this allowed him to go to the beginning of the story if he wanted, or go to the end of the story if he wanted. 
He could behold the whole story. But if he goes to the beginning or the end, he's acting. And if he's acting, then he's temporal. Because now he's at the beginning and now he's at the ending kind of thing. It's, you know. Now, Lewis can say, well, he's just beholding everything all at once, but then that means nothing is happening. It seems to me that God created the world. And then, after that, he did other things. He became a human being. And uh, by becoming a man, at some point in history, God had to participate in time to do that. Now, that doesn't put him in a box. That makes it—that takes him out of a box. Because Lewis's characterization of God in time requires that God just be frozen and beholding the entire book. Now, I don't—that's one way to ground omniscience. How does God know what the future is? Because he's reading the book. He, he's seeing it all at once. But I don't think that's, that has other problems with it. That means he's not doing anything. The God of the Bible acts. And I don't think that's just uh, an anthropomorphism. Like, oh, it just says that because that's where we end. What are the reasons to believe that God is outside of time? Well, time started at the Big Bang. No, history started at the Big Bang, not time. You can have duration apart from any physical thing, and, uh, and, and, and God could be, you know, counting sheep, for goodness sake. If he can count sheep, then he's—or or beholding things happening, beholding angels dancing. If he's beholding that, then he's not changing internally, but he's watching things take place, and that's a temporal activity. All that the Scripture requires is that God is everlasting. I should say, eternal, which means he has no beginning and he has no ending. That's all that Scripture requires. No beginning, no ending. Uh, Bill would say the Scripture doesn't weigh in definitively on whether or not God is temporal or not. I actually think there's an argument from Scripture that indicates he, he is temporal, uh, but that's an, I'm just going to set that aside for the moment. The point I'm making is, as Christians, we are free to go with either option. There is no theological necessity for A or B in terms of the character of God. What's required is that God be eternal, which means he has no beginning and no ending. Okay, um, We're not required by orthodoxy to say that God is atemporal, outside of time. So then what we have to do is go to philosophy, essentially, and reflect on the nature of these options and ask what seems to be most reasonable. And um, And if if it seems biblically that God is participating with me in things, I pray to him, and then he responds by answering my prayer, that's a temporal activity. Before he hadn't answered, then I pray, and then, notice the temporal terms, then he does answer. So I, 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 I hold to the A theory of time, first of all, because it's the most common sensible, and I don't see any reason to hold to B bad. And I think God is temporal also um, because he acts in history, and that's an important part of biblical theology, that he acts in history. And if he doesn't—to act in history, he's got to be temporal. He's participating in the flow of time, and that doesn't limit him in any way, shape, or form. It's not a liability. So, I, I mean, does that make sense to you, or does that help clarify things a little bit more, or does that just muddy, muddy the water more? I don't know. 
No, um, ironically, about a year and a half ago, I called you with the question, if God created time, then when did he do it? And we went over some of the same things, but uh, it, it has you have provided some more mm-hmm. information for me to work on there. And I, what you said, that there is no you in a B theory of time, um, I think that hinges on what my initial concern was, and I haven't really been able to articulate it. But I'll attempt to, and that is, it seems odd that if, well, I've heard it said that in a B theory of time, the passage of time is just an illusion. Right. But I learned from you years ago that an illusion requires a mind to perceive the illusion. That's right. And so That's right. if you have, what what is it that is perceiving this, and when did this illusion begin? And if things don't begin or pass, then how am I at this particular sequence in the uh, series of frames, I guess you could say, that's that are right. my yeah, life. You can't even see events because events are temporal things. You're right. Yeah. yeah that's and a if good, it that's ends, good. does it end or does it loop? And are there like several of these instances going on? Like there's Joshua from yesterday or three seconds ago and they're all, they all just exist. Mm-hmm. And what is this continuation of consciousness? Mm-hmm. And that, or this continuity of consciousness, and that—I mm-hmm. don't know—that's just kind of where I've I've had issues with it. Well, remember, and, uh, it, yeah, and what you referred to is that if materialists don't like consciousness, and and because that's immaterial, it seems to be that's why they have to declare it an illusion, which creates the problem you pointed out that we talked about a couple years ago. But um, yeah, I, 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 you know, there's a lot. It's it's kind of like heady stuff, and I'm I tip my hat to you that you're kind of working through some of this stuff. But um, the if you think of the common sense notion of time happening, and you think of a book. And you think on the B theory, our our the history of the universe and our lives are are just like one big book, and it's all frozen together. And there are logical relationships between events, bef- uh, between things before and after logical relationships. But um, like the birth is logically prior to the death, but that's not a, a before and after temporal relationship. When you get that, then you think, okay, that's that's the B theory, and that doesn't seem to comport with any common-sense notion of our experience of time, uh, in addition to the fact that we are aware of ourselves as a, as a conscious self, a whole conscious self and substance in this moment of time. And that wouldn't be consistent with the B-theory either. So I think the, the B-theory is completely counterintuitive. Now, by the way, there, the A-theory of time could be true, and God still be outside of the flow of time. So that, in a certain sense, that's a separate issue. What Bill right, says right. is that God was atemporal until the first moment of creation, and when he exercised his will to create, that became a participation in temporal moments. So for, for, from Bill's perspective, God entered time when he created the first thing. That may not be the Big Bang or the universe, because he could have created angels before that. You know, but his first act of creation was his first temporal act as well, and uh, he just exercised his will, and then time, in the sense we're talking about, it started a flow of events, 
taking place one after another and not all happening at the same moment, as it were. Um, and I think that's plausible. So, uh, but he would say that God is atemporal prior to creation. I have Gary DeWeese, another philosopher who is at Biola, he thought that God was temporal prior to that because relationship requires temporal interaction on his view. And since God was in relationship in the Trinity, there must have been a passage of time from eternity. So, I mean, th different views on that. But I am totally committed. Whatever people think about God, whether God's in time or not in time, in you know, in the past or whatever, I am convinced, first of all, of the A theory in general. And I do think God is temporal in the moment, just like Bill does. I hold to that view. I don't know what was happening before creation, you know, but but certainly he seems to be actively involved in our lives doing things. And if he's doing things, then the B theory, then God is temporal. He is participating in temporal actions, and that's a good thing because that's how things happen. <laughs> that's how he gets things done. Make sense? Yeah. Um, well, I is there time for about another minute? Yeah, we we had the okay. time for thirty minutes. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'm, now, I'm going to our. Uh, I'll be going to our open mic calls after the break. So you, you, we got okay. time. Go ahead. Um, do the Do you know if the B theorist would say that this, as I've heard it called, block of time, time mm -hmm. space continuum, right. um, or perhaps the book has it eternally existed, or did it come into existence, or um, do, do people believe one or the other in certain circumstances? You know, I, I can't an answer that as to their convictions. I can't recall. But it seems to me if you hold to a B theory of time, you're going to have to hold to the eternality of that. Because, That's what I suspect. Yeah, yeah because for it, for it to come into existence, that that would entail the passage of time at least for that moment. Or temp becoming well, maybe not. Yeah, that yeah, it would saying. be the temporal becoming yeah. of the block. <laughs> yeah, or the book because it wasn't, and then it was. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, so I would think yeah. that on the B theory, you'd have to you'd have to talk about the eternality of this time space continuum. But the problem is, is that you know the universe had a beginning. The universe has an age. We know that. So uh, I don't even is that just a fact in the book? You know, is it is that just a log, is that a just a, a piece of information in the book that's frozen, or did that did the universe come into existence? That of course that's temporal becoming. That would be the A theory. All this shows is that the B theory does not seem tenable to me or to you. Apparently, it's got all kinds of counterintuitive features to it. I, I I really don't see the appeal. Yeah, you have to strain. I wonder if it's if the reason people adhere to it is because it provides a way out of a logical conclusion when you observe the universe, kind of like the multiverse is yeah. how you get around. It's an end um, around of the creation moment. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, or the fine tuning and so B theory may be a way out of that. Yeah, it's hard okay. to know people's motives, but it's fair to ask about the motives once you look at their conclusions and see that the conclusions don't seem to be sound. You know, if we yeah. if we did it the other way around, that would be a genetic fallacy. But we're not saying, oh, they just want to get rid of God. Well, we we can conclude that after we say this isn't a sound view, why would they hold a view that's not sound? 
if we can falsify it on its merits, then we might ask what are the what are the emotional reasons a person might have to hold a view that seems obviously false? And, uh, and there I think it's that is a fair fair uh, conjecture about their motivation. But but I think there are some be theorists who are Christians too, so I don't know what to make of that. It just certainly doesn't seem to be the odds on favorite. Anything else, Josh? No, sir. I appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate your conversation, though. It's fun to talk about this. Thanks for the call. All right, bye. Um, That's it. I mean, we don't have any calls on board, and part of the problem is is I don't give the phone number enough, and Amy's looking at me like, yeah, right, get with it, man. Okay, so here's our number, 855-243-9975, 855-243-9975. I know there are more and more people that are listening on uh, live streaming, and so I do have a live audience. I, I, I didn't used to, but I guess we have one now. Can we see that on our own? We can't see who's checking in, huh? I thought we were able to at one time. I don't know how that works. It's all a mystery to me, all the computer stuff. So fine, digital, fine. Glad you're listening. If you'd like to call in, 855-243-9975, outside the U.S., 562-424-8229. Let's go to break, and then we'll go to open calls when I return, open mic calls when I return. When it comes to answering questions about things like human identity, behavior, and sexuality, who should we turn to, man or our maker? We'll find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. You know, if you've gained anything from listening to Stand to Reason, I'd really be thrilled to hear it from you. I love to take your questions, of course, but I also want your feedback. So here's what you can do. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. That kind of thing really helps us to get the word out so more ambassadors for Christ can find the show and become equipped to stand confidently. And you never know, I might just give you a shout out on the air to show you my appreciation for your positive review. I value you as a faithful listener. I look forward to reading what you think about the show. Thanks. All right, time for uh, open mic calls. And, of course, open mic calls are when you guys call in and leave your question on a recording. Either our website, str.org, let's see, under podcasts and then live podcasts, you can follow the prompts and leave your question there. You'll see how that's done because we're going to have some in a moment. Um, Or you can simply 
dial up 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR, or 857-342-5787. This one's going to be a quick one, because I don't have much to say about it, but I do do want to honor the question. So let's uh, hear from Sophie. Hi, Greg. Uh, My name is Sophie and I'm from France, but I've been living in the UK for about eight years. Uh, My family still lives in France and the majority of them aren't Christian. I've been a Christian myself for about 12 years now and I've tried to reach them several times with the gospel, but I'm finding that quite difficult um, as they're not really interested in hearing about it. I was wondering if you had some practical advice for me to share the gospel with them Uh, especially as I now live in a different country with a different culture. And I'm only able to visit them about once a year, so they don't really get to see how my husband and I live day to day. So I was wondering if you had some practical tips for that. Uh, Thank you for your answer and for all you do through your ministry, and God bless. Mm. Well, thank you, Sophie. And uh, by the way, you have a beautiful voice. And great English and a wonderful accent. So I'm just saying, it was a pleasure to hear what you had to say. Although I don't envy your circumstances. And um, the the circumstance you just described, um, being a Christian and having a family, especially on the continent, European, (laughs) and because the European continent, as you know, is very secularized. and having a family that is not Christian and has not been responsive to what you had to say, and you don't live there anymore. You live in the UK, see them on occasion. Um, It's a difficult circumstance, so I have some thoughts about this. Um, But there, there actually are a lot of people in a very similar circumstance, even though they are not separated by 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 uh, distance like you are, and that is people that have family members that just don't show any interest in the gospel. And there are different things that drive them. Uh, sometimes they're rational challenges that they, well, they think Christianity or theism is just dumb for some reason. It's just dumb. Smart people don't believe that. And you might ask why they think that. And I don't know in the case of your family what their pushback is. I sense from what you said that they just are not interested. I think that was your word. They're just not interested in it. Um, And there's very little you can do, I think, um, in a situation like that. There's a little that you can do proactively. Now, there are other things you can do, and and I don't mean these suggestions to sound trite at all, because I, I believe in these, and I use these in my own life with people, and there's some very close to my heart that are not Christians and are not interested, okay? And uh, the first thing is you pray. Oh, I already know that. I know what you're thinking, and so do I, and so do all of us. But nevertheless, it's something we can do, and I suspect it's something you're doing. And you can pray vigorously. I think prayer matters to God. Our requests, even on this issue, matter to God. And so um, I'm thinking of the people I pray for 
that are not Christian that are close to me, and uh, I pray consistently, okay? Now, um, I will say, okay, so that's one thing. Okay, the second thing is you can you can be careful to live a conscientious Christian life, okay? Um, sometimes the most powerful witness, and this is, again, nothing new here, is the Christian living Christianly, <laughs> displaying the virtues uh, of a good Christian and not displaying vices. In other words, not being a hypocrite, playing against type. Some people think all oh, the Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, when they see Christians that aren't and that are true blues, so to speak, they are true to their word, they're true to their convictions, this has an impact on people. Now, I realize if you're not around them that often, they're not going to be able to see that. But insofar as you are together with them, you display or demonstrate a, a godliness that is is attractive and humble, not drawing attention to itself, but you're just going to be somebody who does right. And especially if you're doing right, contrary to what's in otherwise in your self-interests. Now, I can't do that. That would be right before God. I'm just going to live right here in this situation. So people see that. It has an impact on them. Okay, so that's a, that's a second thing to do. Again, neither of these are profound so far. A third one is to be ready. Um, and what I mean by that is there are many times that people who have no interest in God take an interest in God when the bottom falls out. And so there are times in our lives when we become more open because the things that we have been leaning on in our life are no longer adequate to support us. Sometimes those financial reversals, sometimes it's relationship reversals or marriage reversals or family reversals or sickness or impending death, all of these things. Now, some might snicker at that. Well, that's just foxhole Christians. I don't care where you're at when you turn to God, as long as it's a turning. And nor God doesn't care either. And in fact, I'm pretty convinced that God engineers the foxholes to help us to see our own limitations, our own liabilities, and the, the bent reed the bent reeds that we have been leaning on. I realize I'm using a lot of figures of speech and metaphors here, <laughs> uh, but I think you're following me, Sophie. Um, we live our lives thinking we're the centers of our lives, that we're adequate for everything, and then God shows us that <clears throat> we're not. And that's when people need us when they see that and they say I'm going to pray for you I'm this is God is reaching out to you God is showing you something there's different ways to characterize it you have to decide but you're waiting for that you're praying you're being a good example to them of what a Christian ought to be without having your nose in the air and you're you're waiting to see when God brings opportunity for failure in their life and they begin as a result or tragedy in their life, they begin as a result to think beyond themselves. And that's a good thing. Okay, here's the 
the last thing that I'll offer to you, uh, and that is, um, in my own situation, my father uh, did not become a Christian until about a year before he died. He was 71, and he died. No, he was 70, 71 when he became a Christian. He was 72 when he died. And uh, he didn't become a Christian through <laughs> any of us kids who had all become Christians. He became a Christian um, largely through the influence of his older sister, who was still alive, and there was a tragedy in his life. He came to the end of himself. He had cancer. He went, No, actually, he went in for heart heart surgery, open heart surgery, and when he was facing the prospect of a dangerous surgery, he'd been surgery a number of times before. He'd lots of scars, been under the knife a lot, but this time it really shook him up. And I remember him telling me, I was on the phone driving, and he was telling me about how he came, how this affected him, and he would get choked up talking about the Lord. Now, my dad was a, he was a, a labor union organizer from Chicago, ended up becoming the vice president of the labor union he worked for. He was a tough guy, but God got him, and God had to shake him up really good. He got scared with the heart surgery, and he turned himself over to the Lord. Now, the surgery was successful. But when they gave him the surgery, they found a spot in his lung. He had lung cancer, metastasized to his brain, and that's what killed him. He entered the kingdom, you know, uh, what, naked and smelling of smoke, as a baby Christian, so to speak, but he still entered the kingdom. And it was a very genuine, dramatic kind of reversal in personality. It was amazing. Um, so you you never know what God is doing. And sometimes the person that brings the loved one to God is not you. Just like it wasn't us. It wasn't my brother Mark who led everybody else to Christ in our family, five kids. It was some, it was a, it was a, the influence of my dad's older sister and uh, who he really respected. And also, um, this tragedy that happened in his life that really was a turning point. And uh, he, turned, uh, he turned to Christ and, you know, became a Christian. So I, I hope that helps, Sophie. Um, don't stop praying, and don't stop trusting God for your family. And it may be that you can be praying that God would bring somebody into their life or something into their life that would shake them up and direct them towards him, even though you're not the one that God is using, at, at least at the moment, to accomplish that task. Okay? I hope that helps. Tough situation. And I, f I feel for you, but and I, got a, I got a success story in my own family, which is, uh, which is good. Um, but uh, it's up to God, right? Okay, we got another caller here. <clears throat> And um, let me just push the button here. Leland in Glendale, California. I presume that's California. Is that right, Leland? No, it's Glendale, Arizona. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. <laughs> so, class for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> we 
Well, Glendale, that that's in the Phoenix area, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think is that's that's close to where Robbie Lashua lives too. Is that that's West Phoenix, right? Yes. Uh, oh yeah, you're Robbie close to Lashua. Yeah. What was his last name? Lashua, L-A-S-H-U-A. Yeah, I think I've gotten a text or a uh, email from him before. He's heading up your uh, outpost. He is doing that, right? Yeah. Okay. I've so I've got to get together with him. I li- actually live in Goodyear, which is really west. Yeah, Southwest. I uh, actually uh, think Goodyear is the pl- is the town he lives in. Uh, I, I think the, you're right, if I remember right. Yeah. Okay. So, what's on your mind here, Leyland? Okay. Um, recently, I met someone who uh, uh, was all into like read uh, Atlas Shrugged when she was 18, and that's been her life's philosophy ever since. Uh huh. Totally into Ayn Rand. And, uh... Anne Rand, did you say? That's his view? Anne Rand, yeah. Okay, yeah. All right. And, uh... Her philosophy uh, of objectivism, which, uh... From what I've read about objectivism since then, I don't have much of a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear a lot of Christians don't. In fact, it kind of makes sense to me. Um... And we met, and, uh... It was basically, we were both meeting to kind of proselytize to the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, she gave me a book by Anran, or not a by her, but about her philosophy. In fact, I think the title of the book was Objectivism. And uh, I was reading through the table of contents, and I noticed a chapter on metaphysics, I think, and one on, a, on uh, epistemology. And uh, she really wanted to emphasize to me that okay, you have to get, you know, according to Ayn Rand, you have to get your metaphysics right before you can consider epistemology. Basically, because I was going to uh, buy a book of her of Ayn Rand's, I think it was called Epistemology, where mm-hmm. it focused on her epistemology. Okay. Because I, I thought, well, epistemology, that's the study of, you know, what you can know, how you can know things, and all that. And I say, uh-huh. well, you'd have to know that before you study metaphysics, or or, or before you can get to metaphysics, which yeah. is, you know, what, what you can, what there is to know. And uh, she was adamant that, no, it has to be the other way around. Okay, well, let I'm me... I'm wondering, what do you think, and sure. does this even have anything to do with our respective worldviews? Well, I... I... I don't know uh, if it has to do with the worldviews, because I think sometimes <clears throat> even Christians get this order confused, though they share my worldview. So I don't know if it's germane to a worldview or not, and I don't know hardly anything about Ayn Rand's philosophy—pardon me, philosophy. I'm going to repair that uh, in a couple of days, because I noticed yesterday there was a Prager U on Ayn Rand, that's five minutes long. And so I thought, okay, I'll get a quickie. Oh. You know, there's a Prager U on that. And so well, I'll start with that. Read the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's save yourself the, the, the time or the money. And uh, 
I so I don't I can't speak to her and objectivism I know what that is as a philosophic point of view and um but I don't know if she's got certain wrinkles and so I don't to her type of objectivism so I don't want to mischaracterize her view but All right. um, with regards to metaphysics and epistemology metaphysics metaphysics is broadly uh carving up the world the universe or the world is a, a, a broader term universe would be physical but the world is everything Carving it up at the joints, so to speak. What is the world like? How is it, what is it made like? What is the nature of stuff? You know, and the and so that's kind of metaphysics. What is real, and what is the nature of the things that are real? Okay, but as you pointed out, epistemology is how you know what you know. Okay, it has the it's the the field of philosophy that deals with knowledge and how you justify what you think you know. Okay, now I, I think you put your finger on the issue here. Um, you you have to have epistemology. It strikes me is always the um, the 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 starting point when it comes to um, well, this is going to sound redundant, but the order of knowing. Okay, metaphysics yeah. is the logical starting point. Without the world a certain way, uh, you can't have. You can't have, you know, knowledge at all, you know, if the world doesn't include creatures with consciousness and natures, for example, then, uh, you know, you're not going to, there's not going to be knowledge because there's not going to be beliefs. Uh. But but you have to know about, but, but, but you have to have some means of n reliable knowing in place before you can even understand the nature of metaphysics. And the nature of the world, so the 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 uh, the epistemological starting point is going to be prior. It's the practical starting point. One always has to start with where they're at and what they perceive, however it is they perceive it, because perception happens not just from the five senses, but you have other. Other capacities or other capabilities of perceiving things. We can perceive moral things and logical things and things like that and beautiful things. These are perceptive capabilities that are that are, are functions of our, our rational soul. So we can, uh, you, but you have to have some perceiving individual who is able to weigh the perceptions and draw conclusions about the perceptions. That's epistemology before you can even establish a metaphysic. I, I don't. I don't know how she can do otherwise. I'm, I'm wondering if it is. Exactly what you said, because when I, what little I've read about it so far, it, it starts with you know, well, we are conscious beings that do perceive objective reality, and therefore we can make decisions, and and uh, and and that makes epistemology possible. I don't know if that's it, but I still think I just I still think. We got it right, I think. Well, I, I, I just don't see how it can be possible. To know something about metaphysics, you have yeah. to have epistemology in place. You have to have a, a, a way of knowing that you're practicing. Okay, now yeah. what you might discover is that, that metaphysics is logically prior. In other words, you couldn't know anything if, unless the world turned out to be a certain way. But you can't learn that without first having some way of knowing in place to learn that metaphysics is logically prior to epistemology. Okay? 
I mean, that's the way I would characterize it. And I don't know what else, I don't know what else someone would do, you know, I, I but or, maybe or, I don't understand review well enough and I'll maybe get some more information well, when I listen to the preview. I, I, I just want to make sure I understand. You're, are you saying that metaphysics is logically prior to epistemology and then we need epistemology to figure that out or that that, 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 that claim that epistemology is actually prior to No, metaphysics. it's logically prior. In other words, that in, in the the order of logic, you cannot have a system of epistemology apart okay. from a, a nature of the way the universe actually is. Okay, okay. because uh, knowing is something that is that is is a is done, accomplished, or experienced by conscious beings. Okay, okay. that have the capacity to reason. All right, but if you have a metaphysic that doesn't. It, it uh, make consciousness possible or uh, or reason okay. possible, then you're not going to have any knowing individuals. So you have the, 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 there's a prior foundation, okay, and that's the logically prior foundation of metaphysics. However, any individual has to have knowledge capability in play before they can learn that metaphysics are logically prior to epistemology. So you yeah, can't okay. avoid in the in the in the process. It's you start with epistemology, but it's not okay. because epistemology is the foundation. Metaphysics is the foundation, and that's what you learn from the mis epistemology you have in place. Make sense? It does. Okay, good. I hope that helpful, Leyland. Um, yeah, this is it's a little bit. For, some people are scratching their heads, going, "Huh?" <laughs> you know. But uh, I think you and I understand each other. And that's good for the moment. Well, I don't think it's that much more esoteric than, you know, the discussion of, you know, the A theory and B theory of time. But, you know, and I was really into that. Okay. All right. (laughs) You're that kind of guy. Okay. Thanks for the call, Leland. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye, buddy. I I have one other call I want to go to here, uh, Amy and uh, Derek, and it's down the list. I just was scanning. It's Blair's. Blair Jarrett's uh, question, because it's, I can answer the question quickly, but it has some broader issues involved. Okay, so uh, B-L-A-I, there it is. Okay, got it. Go ahead, Blair. Hello, Greg. This is Blair from Pennsylvania. I'm calling because I may owe you an apology for the offense of plagiarism, which I'm opposed to, but which I don't have a good definition for. So there was a pastor in our presbytery who was put on a disciplinary suspension from the pulpit for a season for the offense of plagiarism. What would qualify as a disciplinary offense? I'm not sure. Which leads me to you. I just got a green light from Robbie Lashell on my outpost director application and are looking to start up in Quakertown, Pennsylvania wow. in the spring, about 45 minutes north of Philadelphia. But I want to say that last summer I taught a tactics class. And if someone had watched your videos on YouTube compared to how I presented material, they would see that some concepts were presented exactly the same way as you do right down to the fake cigar in Columbo's pocket, which I held up and said, don't worry, it's fake. I hate cigars. If this was a real cigar. I would destroy it completely by fire. Yeah. Which got a good laugh. Thank you. I hope that's not plagiarism, but I don't know. There's something about this thing that's bothering me. What do you think, Greg? Thanks. Oh, 
Well, that was great, Blair. I, I can. I, it's hard to find fault with that. But on the merits, it's hard to find fault, too. And uh, that's because I, I don't consider that plagiarism at all. Now, if you had published a book that had all of these things in it, that would be a problem. Uh, if you characterize them as your own, or you took all these sentences that were my writing, and you put it in your own stuff, and you made it your own. And by the way, I have seen some things like that online. I don't go poking around looking for people who stole my work, and uh, for two reasons, maybe three reasons. One is, it's a, it's a, if they steal your work, that's a compliment. Second reason is I want my work to work, even if it's not coming out of my mouth, if it's coming out of somebody else's mouth. And the third reason is, what am I going to do, sue them? I don't have time for that, so I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, but I understand, I'm not worried on my end, but I know that you, as a matter of integrity, are concerned on your end if you're doing something inappropriate. And um, there are some examples of clear cases of plagiarism where you take somebody else's words and work and you represent it as your own, okay? And I don't know what happened to the pastor that was uh, part of the church that you were talking about. I don't know how he plagiarized or what was considered plagiarism, all right? Plagiarism is stealing somebody else's thoughts or ideas. And if you look up, uh, you know, certain characterizations of it that are actionable, then there are probably lots of things that people might consider plagiarism, because you're citing somebody else without giving the source as the one who's the author of whatever you're citing, okay? Um, I'm just telling you, I don't care about that, all right? And so if I don't care about it, I'm not—if I'm giving it to you, you're not stealing it from me. All right, so you don't have to worry about that. I, I frequently say to people, steal my talks. Now, I'm saying this in somewhat in jest because I don't consider it a theft. If, you, if I have given a talk and you find something meritorious in that material, you can take the material and use it. Now, if you're, gonna, if you're going to cite something that is really characteristic of me, um, or the way I put it, or a clever turn of the phrase, or whatever, like Frank Beckwith says, you know, I used to believe in reincarnation, but that was in a former life. Okay, that's a funny line, but I'm not, I don't want to give it like I make it up. It's still funny if I just cite him, so I'm giving him credit for that, okay? That's like a Yogi Berra thing, you know, don't go to other people's, uh, if you don't go to other people's funerals, they won't go to yours. That's Yogi Berra, right? Okay, so, um you know, when when you have some clever thing that's stated in a way that's clever, it's always a good idea to give credit to the person. It's a courtesy. And uh, I have lots of times where I have a turn of phrase, I'll include an insight or something, and I'll footnote it. I just did it the other day, and I said, I got this insight from Doug Guyvett, the philosopher, my friend. You know, he gave me this insight, so now I'm passing it on to you. The fact is, though, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. We are all passing material on that we've got received in one way or another. You know, what's the moral argument for the for, for the existence of God? You know, or the Kalam cosmological argument. These are all different characterizations, and they come from people. Somebody put it together originally, but these have become kind of, what, public domain things. And this is true with a lot of knowledge. I remember saying to J.P. Moreland once, because J.P. has had a, such a powerful influence on my life, especially the years that I spent, <laughs> the many years I spent working on an M.A. Uh, under his direction, an M.A. in philosophy. Too many years, more than I was supposed to. I think it took me nine years to finish my M.A. Well, but uh, I said, Jay, sometimes I, I don't know where you end and I begin. 
I don't know when I'm saying this if I'm saying something that you said or something that I came up with. So what do I do about that? And he said, don't worry about it. Just say it. And if you if you learn something from somebody else, you can pass it on. Now, in this case, I realize, Blair, you're you're using all of my ways of characterizing Columbo and my jokes, too. Look at this isn't true of that joke, but there are lots of other jokes I use that I got from somebody else. And I just put them into play. And sometimes I vary them a little bit and I add something to it. I don't care if you do that with mine. Take it away. Do the job because you're magnifying my work, my ministry, if you will, by taking the things that I have taught in a certain way and passing them on to other people. When we had the series, uh, which is still available, I think, is the Ambassador Basic Curriculum. Do we still sell that? We do. And uh, you'll get a disc that has the talk, and on the disc is is a PDF that is the notes of my notes. Why do I do that? Because I want you to take those things, and if you want to grab some stuff and put it into a sermon or a class or something, go ahead and do it. That's fine. If you want to say, I got this from Greg Kokel, fine. But the general information, usually this is pretty basic stuff that is flying around, and we all just kind of put in our own outlines. My guys are always using stuff from my talk. I heard Frank Turek last weekend, and there it was. I hear line after line after line. I know where you got that. But I'm happy that they did. And then they make it their own. And uh, then they have a, a, a special and fresh and unique impact with it. So go right ahead, steal my talk. All right? Don't steal my chapters and make them your own. That's different. That's plagiarism. Don't do that. But if you want to take the information and whatever jokes or however I characterize it, it's effective for you and you can do it with others, go ahead and do it as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to sue you. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them hip. Bye-bye.